Welcome to The Doctrinal Component with Tom Nettles, brought to you by Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries is a reformed teaching organization committed to the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. For more teaching material by Dr. Nettles, please visit founders.org. Hello, this is Tom Nettles. Welcome to this edition of The Doctrinal Component. We're continuing our look at the issue of law and gospel, a very important theological issue. And we have been looking at several different aspects of the life and the development of thought of Andrew Fuller in preparation for this more, a more biblical and theological look at it. The reason we're doing this is because of how deeply insinuated this entire theological issue was in the life and the development of Andrew Fuller and the importance that Andrew Fuller has for defining this doctrine for the way in which evangelicals look at it today. Some of the theological writings of Fuller I simply want to mention, and then we're going to look at a confession of faith that he presented when he accepted the pastorate at Kettering. But I want to just say a brief word about some of these theological contributions and then show how the confession of faith prepared him for writing these specific works. One of the most important works that Fuller did was a work entitled The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, first published in 1785 and a second edition in 1801. The title tells what the work is about. That is, the gospel in itself has intrinsic value. It is something that requires a hearty acceptance of all people because it is a message about God and his righteousness and how his mercy makes provision for righteousness for sinners. The gospel is worthy of everyone's accepting it, built on a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The way he dealt with this as a person who was a Calvinist and yet saying there should be a free offer of the gospel led an Arminian uh, named Dan Taylor to write a work against Fuller on this. And so Fuller replied in a work called Reply to Philanthropos, in which he answered the objections of Dan Taylor to the positions that he took, that Fuller took, in the gospel worthy. Another was Strictures on Sandemanianism, Uh, Fuller answered objections of some Scots theologians who thought that Fuller's position, because he believed that faith had true holiness in it, that faith that was a mere assent to propositions was not true faith. These people thought that Fuller's position eliminated the truth that God justifies the ungodly. So it becomes a major treatise on the true nature of saving faith. It's Fuller's interaction with the whole issue of what we would call easy believism. And then another important theological work was the Calvinist and Socinian systems compared as to their moral tendency, where Fuller's commitment to the deity of Christ, to the fact that he is the eternal Son of God, uh, is important as he looks at these denials of the true deity of Christ in the Socinian movement in general, and Joseph Priestley in particular. Well, when Fuller became the pastor 
at Kettering. It was a common thing when Baptists went from one church to another or received a church that they would present in public their confession of faith. And this is what Andrew Fuller did at this service inaugurating him into the pastoral ministry there at Kettering. So I want to look at a few of the articles that Fuller set forth in this confession of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. As he talks about the inspiration of Scripture, he says, I believe from this same authority, meaning the authority of Scripture, that God created man in the image of his own glorious moral character, a proper subject of his moral government, that is, of God's moral government, with dispositions exactly suited to the law he was under. That is, that he did have a holy disposition. He had a love for the holiness and righteousness that was set forth in the law, that his dispositions were positive toward that. He had dispositions exactly suited to the law he was under, and capacity equal equally to obey it to the utmost against all temptations to the contrary. So he had the moral dispositions and he had the capacities of nature to obey this. Well, he was not matured and perfected in those things at that point, but he had all the capacities necessary to bring himself to perfection in that obedience. Then he goes on to say this, about Adam in the unfallen state, having these capacities and having these dispositions. He says, I believe if Adam or any holy being had had the making of a law for himself, he would have made just such a one as God's law is. For it would be the greatest of hardships to a holy being not to be allowed to love God with all of his heart. So the law was written on the heart of Adam. And that law was a law of perfect righteousness, and it would have been absolutely sealed to him as meritorious righteousness for eternal life had it become perfected, had holiness and righteousness both been perfected in him through a constant course of obedience to God's command. So this law was written on the heart. It is what Adam himself would have chosen at that time. And so the conduct of man in breaking the law of God was most unreasonable and wicked in itself, as well as fatal in its consequences to the transgressors. He believes that Adam's sin has been passed down to his posterity. He said, I believe the first sin of Adam was not merely personal, but that he stood as our representative so that when he fell, we fell in him and became liable to condemnation and death. And what is more, are all bound, born into the world with a vile propensity to sin against God. He realized these were deep subjects. They were profound. But he did not see any other way to interpret the Bible, especially the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. And he said, I dare not but bow my shallow conceptions to the unerring testimony of God. He believed in the inerrancy of Scripture not doubting but that he will clear his own character sufficiently 
at the last, and at the same time, I know of no other system that represents this subject in a more rational light. Now, he had imbibed from Jonathan Edwards the distinction between moral ability and natural ability, and he included this in his Confession of Faith when he said, I believe that men are now born and grow up with a vile propensity to moral evil, and that herein lies their inability to keep God's law, and as such it is a moral and a criminal inability. Were they but of a right disposition of mind, there is nothing now in the law of God but what they could perform. But being wholly under the dominion of sin, they have no heart remaining for God, but are full of wicked aversion to him. Their very mind and conscience are defiled. Their ideas of the excellence of good and of evil of sin are, as it were, obliterated. So he's dealing with the issue of moral ability, natural ability, that he has the natural ability, all the capacities within his nature to love things, to make choices, to judge things, but all of these are affected by a moral perversity, a criminal perversity that stops him from having any kind of desire to obey the law of God. Then one final article in his confession from which he derived his uh, foundational theological ideas for writing the gospel worthy of all acceptation. Fuller says, I believe that such is the excellence of this way of salvation, that everyone who hears or has opportunity to hear it proclaimed in the gospel is bound to repent of his sin, believe, approve, and embrace it with all of his heart, to consider himself as he really is a vile, lost sinner, to reject all pretensions to life in any other way, and to cast himself upon Christ that he may be saved in this way of God's devising. I think, this I think to be true faith, which whoever have, I believe, will certainly be saved. Well, <clears throat> that means the gospel is worthy of all acceptation. And so he goes on to say, I believe it is the duty of every minister of Christ plainly and faithfully to preach the gospel to all who will hear it. And, as I believe, the inability of men to spiritual things to be holy of the moral and, therefore, and again this word, of the criminal kind, and that it is their duty to love the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation, though they do not. I therefore believe free and solemn addresses, invitations, calls, and warnings to them to be not only consistent, but directly adapted as means in the hand of the Spirit of God to bring them to Christ. I consider it as a part of my duty which I could not omit without being guilty of the blood of souls. Well, and within the context of these assertions of his confession of faith, we find that Fuller has become fully committed to the idea that the gospel indeed is worthy of all acceptation and that instead of not teaching that unregenerate should believe in Christ, 
that it was the duty of every minister of the gospel solemnly to call upon all within his hearing to repent of sin and to believe in Christ with the assurance that all who did so would receive forgiveness of trespasses and would be justified. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Doctrinal Component.